0: Doing good? You look good. Thank you so much for being here today at Hope City Church. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at the church and just really, really excited that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, I'd love to get a chance to do that, somebody on our team. So don't slide out. You know, sometimes, you know how it is, like you get to church late, leave early. You know, that's like kind of the best uh, setup, but we'd love to get a chance to meet you a little bit and uh, and get to know you. And uh, I think if you are here with us for your first time, maybe second time, I think you'll end up liking this place if you give it a chance and get to know some of the people because it's a special place. And so we're just glad that you're here. And today we're starting a four-week series, a four-part series called Last Arrow. Last Arrow. And this series is about an obscure story in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings, probably for most of us in the room today, we've never read this story, not because it's hard to find necessarily, it's just, it's just kind of in the middle of some other stories that maybe we, we gloss over. And And Last Arrow, the, these four weeks, is really a series about urgency and defining moments. Urgency and, and, and defining moments. There are defining moments in life, you know that. We know that. Th- those moments, some sometimes split seconds when one decision, one conversation, like, like like one action defines the rest of our life. And if I was to ask you today to tell me some of the defining moments in your life, you could look back with clarity. And easily identify the defining moments in your past. The problem is that defining moments are really hard to recognize in the moment. And most of the time, defining moments look like every other moment. And so we don't know which moments are defining moments in the moment. Are you with me? If I told you that your next decision would be the most important decision of your life, You know what I know about you? You'd be ready. I I know that. If I told you the next decision would be the most important decision of your life, you would be so ready, so prepared, so psyched. I mean, you would get this decision right. You're going to get it, right? Like if I told you that um, your next boyfriend or girlfriend would be your spouse for the rest of your life, you know what I know about you? You would be so picky. You, you, I mean, you wouldn't go find them at a bar somewhere. You know what I mean? Like you, you wouldn't, you like you would be so picky. and You'd be looking at all them profiles on the internet. I mean, checking family history. You would, you would want to meet mom and dad before you went on your first date. Like you, you would want to know what am I getting myself into? If you knew that your next boyfriend or your next girlfriend would be your spouse for the rest of your life, you would want to get and would get that decision right. If I told you that your next project at work was going to determine the trajectory of your career to to a heavy degree, the next project at your job would really determine the trajectory of your career. You know what I know about you? You would be so prepared for that project. You'd get it 100%. You'd go 110%. You, you, would, you would show up early, you would stay late, you would research, you would ask for help. You would be ready if you knew that that project would be the project that determined the trajectory of your career. If I told you that today would be the last day you'd ever get to spend with your children, you know what I know about you? You would be present. You wouldn't be distracted. You wouldn't focus on things that don't matter. You would give All of your attention and find those moments that really matter with your children if you knew that it was the last the last moment. Eminem asked the question the right way. Some of y'all were already thinking it. Because when you talk about moments, you gotta talk about Eminem. Eminem said, look, if you had one moment, one shot, one opportunity. To seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip away? Now, I'm going to stop right there because y'all don't want to hear me rap. Even though I do know every word to that song. It's it's one of the ways I I got Andrea to marry me, but uh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. That's a great question, though. How many defining moments will you miss because you weren't ready? how many defining moments will you miss because you weren't ready? Speaking of Andrea, Andrea and I went uh, on a date last night. I hope you do that with your spouse as often as possible. It had been a while for us. Uh, You know, we got four kids and and one of them's got strep today. And, uh, you know, so it's just, there's always something going on. And so you got to be very intentional. And so we got us a babysitter and, and decided we're going to go out to eat, and went out to eat, and, and I had been wanting to go out for several weeks because I had some things that I wanted to talk about, and uh, and so we, we went out on the day, we went to the restaurant, and I, I carried my notebook with me because I'm kind of a dork, and um, I'm so spastic ADD that if I don't write down my thoughts, I forget them all, and so... I had told her a couple weeks ago, like, i really like for us to go out soon, because I just got a lot of things that I want to talk about. And she's like, okay, great. And so when I knew we were going on a date, I got my notebook and I and I carried it with me into the restaurant. And she looked at me like, Well, what are you doing with your notebook? And I'm like, just <laughs> I just got some things I want to talk about. And so and, and and so we sat down and 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 um we were like small talking, but she could tell like I was I really wanted to get to what I want to talk about. And she's like, "Go ahead. What's in your notebook?" I'm like, "Okay, great." So, um, so I said, "Hey, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately, and um, I just there was a couple of books that I'd read recently, and a couple of things I'd been listening to, and just kind of had really got my mind focused on really one question that I, I could not stop thinking about, and, and here was the question: Who would I be in ten years? That was the question that was like honestly dominating my mind. Who would I be in ten years? And so I said to her, um, I said, you know, I want us tonight to spend some time answering this question together. Who do we want to be in 10 years? And, and she kind of smiled and rolled her eyes because, like, she just knows, like, this is, the, I, I like to plan and set goals, and so she puts <laughs> up with me. Uh, but I said, hey, before, before we go down that path too far, I want to tell you a couple things. In 10 years, Sadie, that's our oldest, she's going to be a junior in college. Nora will be a junior in high school, probably running the high school. Solomon will be a freshman in high school, and Zeke will be in the eighth grade. In 10 years, we'll be celebrating our 24th wedding anniversary, and we will have been pastoring Hope City Church for 23 years. So I'm talking to Andrea last night, and I said, so just... That's where we're going to be in 2028, God willing. Who do we want to be? Who do we want to be? And she started thinking about it. I said, before you answer, like, I just want to tell you that um, I've got some categories that I've written down. (laughs) And um, and, and I said, like, what, talking about me, I said, so in 10 years, 2028, what will my physical health be? Like, how much will I weigh? In 2028, if I keep putting on just a few pounds every year, come on, I set a goal at the beginning of the year to lose 20 pounds this year, and I've only got 30 to go, so we're, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> We've got time. Um, but what will I weigh? Will I be able to be active with my kids? Uh, I set another category, what will my finances look like? Like, what will our money look like? Will we be debt-free? Will we be giving more than 10%? Hey, here's a question. Will I be able to pay for two weddings, three cars, and college tuition? Because that's 10 years. It's 10 years. 10 years. Another category I have is our family. Will me and my kids be close? Will they want to spend time with me? Will, will they know how to spend time with God? Wow. Will, will they love the church? Will my wife respect me, like me, wow. still be attracted to me? Because it's only 10 years away. And it's easy to assume, the reason I'm telling you this, this conversation from last night, is it's so easy to assume that it will just be good. You know, there's, there's, a, the, the, there's this thought that, you know, it'll just get better in time. It's not guaranteed to just get better in time. Do you know that? It won't just get better. Who do we want to be? Where do we want to be? And, and here's, here's the important part, and here's why I brought it up last night. What do we need to be doing now to make sure that we are who we want to be 10 years from now? What do we need to be, wife, Andrea, love you, thanks for coming out with me tonight, question here for you, what do we need to be doing now to be who we want to be 10 years from now? Now, Some of you in the room, you're like a teenager and you're like, this is pointless, I don't care, I get that. Some of you, you are in your, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and you're like, yeah, I used to think about that when I was in my 30s, that's awesome, that's great. Um, I... I'm just kind of in this place in my life right now. I just don't want to miss moments. Will I miss some moments? Yeah, I'm going to miss some moments. Will I make some mistakes? I'm absolutely going to make some mistakes. Are God's plans different than the plans I'm making for the next 10 years? Absolutely. Are they better? They are. I get all that, but I, I, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I need to be doing now in order to be who I believe God wants me to be 10 years from now. And I believe the same thing's true about you. I believe that if we knew which decisions would define our life before we made them, we would be way better decision makers. Isn't that true? But we don't. And most of the time, life's most important decisions are not the most urgent decisions. What's urgent is not really what's most important. And what's most important is rarely urgent. So we have two choices, it would seem. Everybody in the room today would have... Two choices. We can either try to guess right. That's a philosophy. That's a strategy. Just guess right. Hope you show up to work on the right day with the right attitude. Give your best effort on the best projects. Get right with God right before you die. Come on, some of you, that's your strategy this morning. I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'll get right with God right before I have to. Or, or we can make a decision to live life on purpose and decide that we don't want to miss a moment, or miss a miracle, or miss something that matters. And, and the idea for, for that is really what this series is about. How to live like life depends on it, because guess what? It does. That you never accidentally end up where you want to end up on, on purpose, I read an interesting story recently about the Iraqi war. Um, In the Iraq war, uh, the the army was studying about local mobs and local violence, and and they were studying to try to figure out, because there had been a lot of local violence recently. It had kind of been breaking out in the town square and in the plaza, and so the the army was trying to figure out how to de-escalate the violence without causing more violence, and so as they studied the clips of what was happening, they they discovered that there was a pattern that developed every time local violence would erupt into, into an angry mob. That that some people would show up in the plaza and and then more people would show up and, and then chants would start and and, and and people would start yelling, and then as the sun would set, people would get hungry, and because there's a crowd, the the, the kebab sellers would be in the plaza, the people with food in the carts would be in the plaza, and so people would eat, and then somebody would inevitably throw a bottle or light a fire, and then, and then violence would break out. And so the army decided that they would do something a little bit, a little bit unique in a small town called Cuba, and, and, and it was about 90 miles south of the capital. They went to this small town, and they asked the mayor of the town, they said, hey, will you do us a favor? We want to test our theory Will you make sure to keep all of the cart food salesmen out of the plaza? Don't, don't enforce anything else. Just don't let the guys who sell food from the carts get in the plaza. And so they agreed to do that. And so a few weeks later, the people gathered. Some people gathered in the center of town like they always did. And then some more people gathered like they always did. And then they started chanting like they always did. But something interesting happened this time that as the sun began to set, people were getting hungry, and so they were looking around for the food on the carts and the kebab salesmen that were always there, but nobody was there, and so people got restless and hungry and decided to leave, and by eight o'clock, the town square was empty, and I love that story. When I read that, I love that story because I think it, it really speaks to how most of us end up places we didn't really ever intend to be. And if we wanted to get real practical with it, we usually end up in mobs and angry mobs that we never really intended to be in, but somebody offered us a kebab, and so we're like, I'm in, I'll be there, (laughs) chicken on a stick, I'll hang with you, whatever you want to do, but that's never really, we're not really that passionate about what we're yelling about or fighting for, there was just somebody giving us kebab, and so we said we were in. And I think if you just wanna zoom out on life a little bit, I think a lot of times we end up in places that we never either intended to end up or places we're not even really that passionate about in life. Yeah, but then we maybe get caught up in the moment. And so for the, for the four weeks that we spend together, I'm hoping that by the end of this series that you will be compelled to live life on purpose. Wow. That you will be compelled to do the things that you need to do in order to be who you want to be and who God wants you to be. And so this this series, Last Arrow, comes from this story in the Old Testament. And the next three weeks, we're going to look at some stories in the Bible where people made a decision to go all in. They made a decision to just leverage it all and to go all in for God, and they decided not to miss the moment. They held nothing back. They made a defining decision that changed their life forever. That's going to be the next three weeks. But this week, it's going to be a little different. Because in this week's story, somebody does make a a, a defining decision that that defines the rest of their life. But it it will be the wrong decision. And so what I'm hoping is that as we read these stories together is that you will make the decision to hold nothing back. To save nothing for something later, but decide to go all in and to not miss a moment. And to do what you need to do now so that you can be who you want to be, who you want to be later. I'm convinced that we need to raise the bar on our standards, raise the bar on our faith, raise the bar on our sacrifice, expectations of ourselves, expectations of what God wants to do for our life. The expectations are so important because they define how you live your life. If you don't have high expectations for yourself, you're probably meeting your expectations. If you don't have high expectations of what God wants to do in and through your life, he's probably meeting your expectations. But if you ever got crazy and bold enough to raise your expectations about what you could be and what God could do and wants to do in your life, it would either make you go all in or it would make you be miserable because you would know that there would be something else out there, all right? So let's, let's jump into this story today. It's in 2 Kings chapter 13. Today's story is about a king named Jehoash and a prophet named Elisha. And in this story, Jehoash is the king of the nation of Israel who is at war against another nation called Judah. So you've got these two nations, you've got Israel and and Judah. And Jehoash is being threatened by the king of Judah, but Jehoash has a secret weapon, and his secret weapon is Elisha. Elisha was God's prophet who, who spoke on God's behalf. He performed miracles. And if Elisha was on your team, it was like having LeBron. You're going to the finals, okay? <laughs> like, like if Elisha's on your team, you're on the right team because Elisha would talk to God. So when the king needed advice, he would go to Elisha. Elisha would ask God. God would tell Elisha. Elisha would tell the king. But where we pick up the story today Elisha is very sick and is about, to, um, is about to die, and so Jehoash is going to make one last visit. It's in 2 Kings 13, starts with verse 10. This is what it says. It says, Jehoash, son of Jehoash, uh, so he's a junior, I guess, began to rule over Israel in the 37th year of King Jehoash's, different guy, don't get confused, reign in Judah, he reigned in Samaria 16 years, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nabat, had led Israel to commit. Stop for a second. We're going to keep reading in just a moment, but I think this is a great place to stop because we get just a quick glimpse into the kind of man and the kind of king that Jehoash, Jehoash was. We only get two verses, just two verses, but they are not good verses, According to the Bible, Jehoash did evil in the Lord's sight. I'll be the first to admit that's not a great summary of his life. But it does seem a little bit harsh. Like evil? He did evil? If I was to ask you today, do you, anybody know somebody who's evil? You'd probably say yes, but the reality is you probably don't know somebody who's actually evil. Because if you want to talk evil, we're talking about really dark people. And so according to the Bible, Jehoash did evil? Evil in the Lord's sight? That seems a little extreme. Like, surely he had some good days. Surely he, you know, helped an orphan or a widow every now and then, went to church once or twice a month, Hel- you know, gave to some charities, used his kingdom to do something good. It seems a little bit extreme to, to say that he did evil. And a one-sentence summary is a really hard standard to apply to somebody's life because you don't get any context or any explanation, and it makes me wonder. As I was reading through this story, preparing for the sermon, it began to it kind of made me wonder if someone had to sum up my spiritual life in one sentence. I wonder what they would say. One sentence. They don't get to judge on the on the on the exceptions or the highlights. They just get a one-sentence summary to define my spiritual life. I wonder what they would say. I wonder what they would say. And the Bible actually gives us some other one-sentence summaries about some guys in the Bible. They're all not bad. Everybody didn't do evil in the Lord's sight. The Bible says that King David was a man after God's own heart. That's a pretty nice one-sentence summary. My life verse, Exodus thirty three eleven says, Moses talked to God like a friend face-to-face. I'll take that. Like, that would be a phenomenal one-sentence summary. Somebody says, hey, how, how, how was Jason and God? Dude, Jason knew God like a friend. They talked like face-to-face. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's what they said about Moses. That's what they said about King David. And I wonder if you applied that question to your life. I wonder what people would say if they only had one sentence to summarize Your spiritual life. What would they say? Would they say, like, would they say, man, they loved God? Mm -hmm. Would they say, man, they knew how to pray? They were so full of joy and power. Would they say those things? Or or, or would they say, you know, they had such potential, but they were just so cynical Mm -hmm. that they never could believe or get their hopes up that God was bigger than the box that they had created for him? Would they say that, that, you know, like, I mean, they're in heaven. You ever had that conversation? I mean, you know, I think they're in heaven. I mean, they made, like, they made it in the balcony of heaven probably, you know. I mean, they got in there. A one-sentence summary makes it clear. We either have passion or we don't. We either want it or we don't. We either do it on purpose or we don't. And I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody to have to lie at my funeral. You've been to those funerals? My, my grandmother passed away Friday night, and so many of you have reached out. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. But, you know, one of the greatest things about her funeral, she's 80 years old. She's a legend. She lived an amazing life, loved Jesus. She's in heaven. It's the way it's supposed to be. One of the things that excites me the most about leaving tomorrow and going to her funeral is nobody's got to lie at the funeral. Like, we just get to celebrate the fact that she was who she says she was. And when somebody stands up and says, man, she loved Jesus, everybody's going to go, oh, yes, She did. But you ever been to that funeral? Sometimes I have to perform those funerals where somebody's like, you know, they, they struggled, you know, but they had a good heart. And they did really, when they were eight that one time, they did give their life to Jesus that one time. Because we're just grabbing, hoping, like one thing. And I believe God's more gracious than we think he is. But my point is that, like, I don't, I don't want somebody to have to lie at my funeral. I don't want my kids to get up and be like... Yeah, no, he was a good dad, yeah. You know, I, I want him to, to be able to speak the truth right. and to be the right truth. And we're gonna keep reading this story, but, um, but I wanna just point out one more thing about the summary of Jehoash's life. Just two words, it's in verse 11. It says, he refused, everybody say refused. refused. Jehoash refused to turn from the sins that, that Jeroboam had kind of started the dominoes that he has started. And that's a really important word, refuse, because when you refuse, it literally means, dictionary, that you're not willing. You're not willing. It's not an accident. It's not that you don't know. It's that you weren't willing to do something that you knew you were supposed to do. And so the summary for Jehoash's life in the Bible is that he did evil because he wasn't willing to do what he knew God wanted him to do. Jehoash knew. Every time he went to bed, he knew. Every time he talked to his mom or dad, he knew. When the spiritual advisor came in, he knew. Every time he met with Elisha, he knew. He knew what God wanted him to do, but he was unwilling to do it. I think this is a good place to stop and ask ourselves this question. This is one of those defining moment questions for our life, specifically our spiritual life. Here's the question. Is there something I know God wants me to do but I've been refusing to do it? Let that soak in for a second. It's a question for every person in this room, whether you call yourself a Christian or you've been serving Jesus for 50 years, is there something in my life I know God wants me to do, but I have been refusing to do it? And we could start listing all the categories. Maybe it has to do with sin. Maybe it has to do with generosity. Maybe it has to do with calling somebody, texting somebody, asking for forgiveness, forgiving somebody. We could just start working down the list, confessing. And you know, you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to come schedule an appointment to ask me if it's God. You know it's God. You can't shake it. You can't run from it anymore. You know it's what God wants you to do. But you refuse to do it. That was Jehoash. He knew. And the Bible called it evil because he lived his life refusing to do what he knew God wanted him to do. So I want to keep reading. We're going to p- jump down to verse 14, 2 Kings 13, verse 14, because the Bible is going to give us just one story. We get, we get one sentence summary about Jehoash, and then we get one story, and this is where we get this idea for a last arrow. This is what it says. We're going to read 14 to 20, a couple of verses here. This is what it says. It says, when Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel, he cried. Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows, and the king did as he was told. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow, and Elisha laid his hand on the king's hand. Then he commanded, open that eastern window, and he opened it. Then he said, shoot, so he shot an arrow. Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Aramians at Ephek. So, so let's just stop for a second. Just let me catch you up in case you got confused. Uh, Jehoash shows up. He says to Elisha, I'm really scared because I think we're going to lose because you're going to die. And Elisha says, get a an bow and arrow. He gets a bow and arrow. Elisha says, shoot. He shoots it. And, and, and Elisha says, symbolically, let me tell you what just happened, Jehoash. That arrow that you just shot represents how far reaching the victory God's going to give you is. So it was this kind of spiritual symbolic moment. Is everybody following me? Okay, all right, keep reading. Then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. Everybody say three times. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only. Everybody say only. Only. Only three times that Elisha died and was buried. Now, I will be the first to admit this story is a little bit strange. <laughs> is it, like if you're like, ah, I struggle to read the Bible, it just doesn't make sense. You're talking about stories just like this one, okay? Yeah. And I get that. Clearly, there was more going on in between the lines and the words in the room that we're reading about than just the words that we get. Why was God leaving the outcomes of wars up to guys smashing arrows in the ground? That's a valid question. Why didn't Elisha give him more instruction? Valid question. Why didn't God tell him the outcome of his nation was at stake? Because wouldn't we all agree that if Elisha would have said, grab those arrows, heads up before I tell you what to do next, just know that to the degree that you perform this next exercise will determine how successful you are for the rest of your life? Okay, now let me give you the instruction strike the ground. Jehoash would have been like, "Mm, mm, mm, I'm going after this thing, right? right? He doesn't get any of that. He doesn't get any of it. We don't know the answer to any of those questions why God did it the way that he did. And at some level, I will admit it seems a little bit cruel to leave people's lives up to such a seemingly unimportant moment. But this story is a great reminder that so often the things that we think are really important are not that important. And the things that we think are not that important are actually really important to God. That we live our lives thinking, man, this has to be so important to God. And God's like, not really. And then we have these things that are like, man, this is just really not important. And God's like, no, 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 that's really important. Can I give you an example? Like Honor. Like for us, honor is not that big a deal. We don't like our boss. They're a jerk. We talk bad about them. We disrespect authority. We're frustrated. It's no big deal. We're just venting. But honor is a big deal to God because the way that we react and treat authority that we don't agree with in our lives lets God know if we are now ready for more influence and authority. So God uses honor as a big deal to determine if we're ready for more influence and authority. But we're like, "Ah, that's not really a big deal. They're just a jerk. I don't like them. Can I give you another example? Talent. We love talent. We worship talent. We celebrate talent. We think talent is a big deal. God's like, not really. Wow. Good. God doesn't use talent in any way to decide who he wants to choose to do anything wow. significant. So we're like, that's got to be them. They're so talented. God's like, that's just not really that important to me. Wow. And so we go through life thinking that's really important and that's not. And it's usually the other way around. And this is one of those moments. This seemingly unimportant, we don't know why Joash didn't do what he could have done with more vigor and passion, but I would be willing to bet that he thought this guy who was dying on his deathbed was losing his mind. Okay, Elisha, arrow's my victory. Smash the, okay, hang in there, buddy, right? That's probably what he was thinking. This guy's losing his mind. But this was a defining moment, a defining moment for Jehoash and his kingdom. So the Bible uses this obscure story, but what does it have to do with you and me? Okay, this guy's striking arrows into the ground, but what does that have to do with me, Jason? Well, I think it has a lot to do with our lives. So what I want to do for just a few moments we have left today is I want to give you three takeaways from this story. I want you to write them down, put them in your phone, take a picture of the screen, whatever you want to do. But I think there are three really important takeaways from this story that are important to us To live like life depends on it. All right, here we go. Number one, first takeaway that that we can get from this story. Number one is God wants me to win, but will let me lose if I don't want to win. I love this about God. It's really easy to forget as we read this story because it feels like God's kind of punishing him. That is not what happened in this story. God wanted Jehoash and his kingdom to have complete victory. Don't lose sight of that. God wanted them to win, and I love that about God. You know God wants you to win? Did you know that God wants you to win? He wants you to have complete freedom, complete victory. He wants you to exceed your expectations. He wants you to climb the ladder. Now, his purposes may be different than your purposes for why he wants you to win, but he wants you to win. And so if you view life like like God's against me, God's mad at me, You're gonna assume everything that happens against you is God, and it's not because God wants you to win. But He'll let you lose if you don't want to win. Now, if I was to ask you today who wants to win, I'd be like, I want to win. Okay, I'm not, I don't just mean like it'd be nice if I won. I mean people who are willing to do whatever it takes to win. And so there is this tension in all of us between what do we control in life and what does God control, because God is all powerful, He's all knowing, He's in all places. And so you really start going down this weird kind of dynamic when you start talking about what things are within my control and what things are outside of my control, and is God going to do what God wants to do anyway, or, or, or is what I do really what makes the biggest difference? And, and I knew that like, our minds go there as we read this. That's where my mind went. I know we all kind of think that. And I found this great quote from, from a, a, a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who is a, um, just a, a world-famous historical preacher, pastor, author, uh, Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he said. He was actually preaching uh, on this scripture. And so I'm like, okay, like, did anybody, is there anybody who preached on this that could explain this? And Charles Spurgeon did. So I'm like, okay, let's read that manuscript. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, things are often left to the will of men, that's you and me, yet everything does come to pass in the end according to the will of God. Can you not believe them both? And is not the space between them a very convenient place to kneel in adoring and worshiping him who you cannot understand? If you could understand your religion, it would be one that did not come from God. It would have been made by a man of limited capacity like yourself, who was therefore able to make what you can comprehend. But inasmuch as there are mysteries in your faith to the top of which you cannot climb, be thankful that you need not climb them. Isn't that so good? So good. And so as you're thinking about who do I want to be in 10 years, who do I want to be in 25 years, what kind of parent do I want to be, what kind of Christian do I want to be, what kind of spouse do I want to be, we understand that there is this whole lane happening that God is in control of, that is supernatural, that is outside of us, and God does what God wants to do. But we also find that there's a whole nother lane where what we do determines so many outcomes in our life. And so the response is not to say, well, I'll just be wherever God wants me to be. And the response is not to say, it's all up to me. We're going we're to pray and live like it depends on us. We're going to live and work like it depends on us. We're going to pray like it depends on God and believe that God wants us to win. But we're going to work like we want to win. And so, and so we take away from this story that God wanted complete victory for Jehoash and for the kingdom. But Jehoash didn't get it because of what Jehoash didn't do, not because of what God didn't do. And some of us in the room today don't have what we've prayed for, believed for, searched for. I get it, and we're frustrated at God. And that could be that God is withholding from us because there are times that he does that. But could it also be that we have not done what we can do? That may be it. So God wants me to win, but will let me lose if I don't want to win. Second takeaway is this. Small decisions make a bigger difference than it feels like in the moment. Small decisions make a bigger difference than it feels like in the moment. You don't have to find it, but Ephesians 5, 15, 16 says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. So he's about to tell us what fools don't do and wise people do. Make the most of every opportunity. And when I read that, I'm like, every opportunity, that's exhausting, right? Like every opportunity, have you met my kids? There's like a million opportunities a day, okay? Every opportunity, he's like, yeah, that's what a lot of people do. Fools think that moments don't matter. And so, and so small decisions make a bigger difference. We all know and feel like, like this is the big decision, And those do matter, but small decisions make a bigger difference than it does in the moment. So what are the small, consistent decisions in your life that you are doing right now that are adding up? Because one day, you're going to be somewhere great, and people who want to be where you are are going to say, how'd you do it? And they're going to try to define it and shrink it down to one decision. What what, what was it, man? What was the secret? And it wasn't going to be one thing. It's going to be a thousand decisions that have stacked up on top of one another and compounded to be the life that you want to live. Right. But you also may end up in a really bad place. And the people who don't want to be you are going to be like, phew, man, I hope I don't end up where they did. What they do wrong? Well, they didn't do one thing wrong. They did a 1,000 things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And they stacked up and compounded to get them to where they are. So small decisions make a bigger difference than it feels in the moment. But let me give you one more. And this is my favorite. I saved it for the last. But let me give you one more takeaway from this story. I'll never be completely free until I'm completely committed. I'll never be completely free until I'm completely committed. This story is about an enemy and about finally being free from them. That is what God wanted for Jehoash and his nation. Read the story. God wanted Jehoash to have complete victory and freedom from his enemy. That's what God wanted for him. That's what this story is about. God wanted Jehoash to never have to face them again. Let's beat them this time and let's beat them for good. And I'd be willing to bet that there's something that you've been fighting really for too long in your life. And you would give almost anything to be completely free from it. And the good news is if you'd give almost anything, you're almost there but there's still something that you're holding back. There's still something you're not willing to do. There's still a a commitment you're not willing to make or a sacrifice that you're not willing to make or a distance that you're not willing to go. And the reason that you're not completely free yet is because you have not completely committed yet. So what in your life What is that last 10%, that last 5%, that last decision that you know you need to make that would mark the complete commitment? Maybe it's giving up something that has a hold of you. Maybe it's bringing somebody else into what you're struggling with. Maybe it's a public confession. Maybe it's letting go of that job to get that job. Maybe it's breaking up with a person that is not bad, but they're not great. Maybe it's picking up the phone and telling somebody who doesn't even know that they hurt you that you forgive them. Maybe it's forgiving somebody that doesn't even know that they need to be forgiven. What is the thing that you've said to God, God, I am almost all in. You take all that, but I'm going to hold on to this. Because the moment that you let that go and you say, all right, I've got nothing left to give. I am completely in. That is the moment when you'll be completely free. And you will live a life better than you ever imagined that you could live because it will be the full life that Jesus said he came to give. That's what Jesus said. I'm not not spending some self-help stuff here. Jesus said, I came so that people would have life To the fullest. And so if you're here today and you're like, Jason, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I got to be honest with you, it's a little underwhelming. And I don't really feel like it's all that full. What have you not given up yet? And when you do, what you'll find is that there is a level of victory and freedom that you never knew existed. And it can be yours. You'll never be completely free until you're completely committed. Let's pray.